0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Every six to eight years, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, undertakes a massive review of the latest science around climate change. Right now, we are near the end of one of these cycles of scientific review. Because the work is so large in scope, the IPCC splits its findings into three reports covering different aspects of its work. In August, the IPCC released a report on the drivers of climate change. Then, in late February this year, it released a report on the effects of climate change. And on Monday, April 4th, it released its third report, this time focusing on the scientific consensus around what can be done to mitigate or prevent climate change. My guest today, Ryan Hobert, is the Managing Director of the United Nations Foundation's Climate and Environment Team. We kick off discussing the processes behind these IPCC reports before diving deep into some of the specific findings of this latest scientific effort. I think you'll find this conversation very useful. I know I did. I often find these IPCC reports to be rather dense and and sort of impenetrable uh, to me as a journalist. But as you'll see, Ryan Hobart does a very good job of breaking down the key findings of this report, including its implications for the agriculture and food and land use sectors. And as always, feel free to reach out to me if there are people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover or anything that is on your mind. And I always appreciate feedback, positive or negative. I've been doing this for a long time and uh, any feedback is always much welcome. Thanks. All right. Now here is my conversation with Ryan Hobart of the United Nations Foundation. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is essentially the United Nations climate science body. Uh, It was created in 1988 by two UN entities, the World Meteorological Organization and the UN Environment Program. And its role is to provide governments with scientific information and regular assessments to inform their climate policies. It also has played an important role, as you can imagine, with the the international negotiation process, um, and it has it's universal, so it has all 195 country governments of the UN are members of the IPCC. Um, so just a, a couple things. So one is it doesn't prov- it doesn't produce any original research. It publishes peer review. It, it assesses peer reviewed scientific literature, and uh, it pieces together a complete picture of what, uh, of where things stand on climate change. Um, And it also involves uh, a very diverse group of hundreds of scientists from all those 195 member, member governments. Um, And and that's why it's seen as the ultimate authority on climate science and uh, represents the consensus uh, on, on climate change. so, the way it works is that there are the ipcc operates through multi-year assessment cycles so and those cycles last anywhere from five to seven years usually on the the longer end of that time frame and so there will be usually in the process of a cycle there will be several what they call special reports um, and then in about a two-year period at the end of any cycle there will be three working group reports and then one, uh, synthesis report uh, they kind of sum up everything that's known that's that that has been gathered over that time period, and it's um, these
0: synthesis reports that are like the big deal reports in in terms of the output of the
1: IPCC. So the synthesis reports are the big deal in terms of summarizing everything from the the cycle. But the three working group reports themselves each have what's called a summary for policy maker, makers, and those reports themselves are negotiated by governments based on the underlying science in the working group reports. So just very quickly, so the, the three working group reports, in, in this cycle, we had working group one that came out in August, and that's, that was on the physical science basis of climate change, so kind of the basic science Working Group Two came out in late February, and it covered impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. And then Working Group Three just came out uh, just came out uh, earlier this week, um, and it covered mitigation, so the solutions aspect. But each of those working group reports have their own processes uh, their own technical leads, et cetera. And, uh, and they each end in a week to two week negotiation among governments with the IPCC and the lead scientists.
0: And again, we're speaking just a couple of days after that working group three report was released. And I understand that, you know, it kind of came down to the wire in terms of, uh, putting the sort of you know, dots on the lowercase j's and crossing the t's uh, in terms of, of the summary for policymakers.
1: Is that right? That's exactly right. So uh, it, it, it was the longest uh, negotiation. It went over by several days. In fact, it delayed the final press conference, which was supposed to be early in the morning US time on Monday morning and, and, and ended up happening later, later in the day. And it was largely because of political wrangling. I mean, in in uh, typically the IPCC. I mean, they're very clear about how they are not being politically prescriptive. Uh, They're providing the the assessment tools for governments to make their own policy decisions. But inevitably, given the polarization, given the kinds of things that they're saying in their reports. A number of governments uh, are 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 very vocal about how things get framed, which topics get raised, um, and 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 just to also say that these summary for policymakers uh, are much shorter. They're typically the thing that get that actually gets read by the broader public um and they can be somewhat different than what's in the underlying reports and the underlying reports are so big and vol- so 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 large that uh a lot of different things can be pulled out of that to be put in the the, the summary for policymakers so in this particular example of the working group C th- three report uh we had India and Saudi Arabia in particular that had a lot of objections to how things were being portrayed in the draft. And so it took an extra several several days, which is usually more of kind of within the UNFCCC, the the climate negotiating body, that's where things tend to go over less in the IPCC. But in this case, uh, 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 that happened. and it, it sort of makes you wonder whether some of the politics of the broader, Negotiation process is infecting even these science uh, these science endeavors. Well, I, I want to get
0: into the substance of the report, but I, I am curious t- to learn, like, what were, say, India and Saudi Arabia's objections?
1: Yeah. So. India was large, largely objecting uh, on issues related to responsibility of countries. And while the report itself doesn't directly touch on who should do what, again, they're not policy prescriptive, um, there are the way you emphasize certain things could you lead you to believe that countries should have a responsibility to do more or less based on their historical responsibility, their capacity, things like that. So that was largely the, in what India was was pointing out. Saudi Arabia, for a long time, has been known, well known within the climate negotiations and in these kinds of fora, uh, to to block to you know to block certain things and to object, particularly when the implications of uh, things like these reports show that. Fossil fuel uh, uh, extraction, development, and uh, consumption are going to need to be drastically cut back since they're largely a fossil fuel based economy. Yeah, the final report did say precisely that, right? Exactly. I- about it uh and 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 that's sort of the remarkable thing in the end is that they are they go along with these reports that essentially say we need to very quickly transition away from fossil fuels
0: okay so what were some of the key takeaways from this working group three? Report Now, I take it what distinguished this report, as you said earlier, is that it focused on opportunities for mitigation. that is what can we do to prevent uh, you know a, a climate apocalyptic scenario?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we'd already gone through what's the basic science, then what uh, what are the impacts and how are we going to adapt? And so this three this third part is about what are the solutions, how do we mitigate? Uh, And then what do we need to do in order to stick to the goals that we've set ourselves? So essentially what it said, I mean, the big headline is we're not on track. Uh, The Paris Agreement in 2015 uh, set goals of staying below two degrees of warming uh, compared to pre-industrial levels, uh, aiming, if possible, at keeping temperatures from rising no more than 1.5 degrees. That's Paris's stretch goal. And essentially, what this report says is we're not we're not on track. We're not on a trajectory to get us there. Uh, with even with the commitments that have been made uh, since Paris, we're probably more on a three degree course. Um, so you know, double that one point five goal. Um, that said, they clearly said that it's within reach to stay uh, to, to be at 1.5, but that means really, really drastic emiss- emissions reductions in a very short amount of time. So they essentially said that emissions have to peak and start to very quickly go down uh, by 2025. So in the next three years, and that we would have to reduce our emissions globally by something like 40% by 2030. So a, hu- a, a really big task. Um, but they also said that we have the technologies we need to get this done, at least to get well on the way of reducing emissions over the next few years. And I think for the first time compared to previous reports that these technologies are now cheaper. And in many, many cases, even in the developing world, uh, they're the preferable option. So they said that solar and wind costs fell by 85% and 55% respectively over the last 10 years. Um, Again, making them cheaper than fossil fuel powered electricity generation in most places. Um, So so their point was really that the obstacles at this point are political rather than, than technological.
0: And it seems also a good deal of the public commentary I've seen around this report also has highlighted that perhaps for like the first time, at least in a meaningful way, the IPCC is embracing or at least giving
1: much credence to like carbon capture and sequestration. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, and uh, you know, this can be this can be a touchy subject for a number of reasons. But they essentially said that car- what they call carbon removal, um, uh, which is which is not just reducing the emissions that were that uh, that we're putting out there, but actually finding ways to sequester and do away with emissions that are already in in the atmosphere, that that carbon removal is unavoidable if we want to reach what they call net zero by mid-century. And then they talk a little, they talk about ways to draw down CO2 and other gases Uh, You know, obviously there's, uh, uh, you know, reversing deforestation, uh, but then there are also more technological approaches, which involve what they call direct air capture, which is essentially taking carbon right out of the air. Uh, There are a number of other technologies um, and they range from natural, you know, natural sinks, what they call sinks, uh, absorption, uh, uh, places where, where carbon and other greenhouse gases can be absorbed. Uh, all the way to, you know, much more uh, technologically focused solutions.
0: So, you know, in addition to, you know, rapidly moving away from fossil fuels, uh, you know, somehow embracing or advancing work and and progress on some of these other technologies like carbon capture and sequestration, uh, another big focus of the report, and I know your area of expertise is around how, the agriculture sector and, and land use and food systems could be harnessed to uh, support global efforts to combat climate change. What did, what does the report say about that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. So the report essentially says that between agriculture, forestry, and other types of land use, um, those together are contributing over a fifth of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, they say 22%. And then, and then if you think about food systems, um, so slightly different way to conceive of it. So that's the agriculture, the production of food, transport sales, and then the resulting waste of food consumption that makes up about a third of greenhouse gas emissions. So either way you look at it, it's, it's really huge. It's a, it's a really big chunk um, and that's true in terms of emissions, but it's also in terms—it's true in terms of reduction potential. Um, and it makes very clear that the that 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 agriculture and food and forestry have the potential to provide large-scale greenhouse gas emission reductions, um, but they offer a number of caveats about how there's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to addressing these emissions. Uh, and, then, and that they need to be tailored at the local and uh, and in particular socioeconomic contexts. I mean, so I take it there's no like single
0: low-hanging fruit uh, in terms of what can be done perhaps with a minimum amount of political will to use this sector to uh, improve our climate, or in other words, use this sector as a way to mitigate climate change.
1: Yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of different uh, there are a lot of different solutions. I mean, they're the ones that are obvious and that we know of. And probably the first one there is preserving and restoring forests. Um, there are a number of reasons to do that, including biodiversity reasons, you know, microclimate reasons, etc. Um, they touch on peatlands and wetlands, essentially carbon that's in a wet form uh, that's been deposited over thousands of years and it's that's very, very rich in carbon and that we've been we tend to drain and use it's very it's very fertile soil, so we tend to use it for agriculture. Um, but 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 those are those are ticking time bombs in terms of of carbon. Um, but there are other other strategies including so- managing the soil uh, soil carbon, uh, whether it's in grasslands or in croplands, um, agroforestry, which is a, an inter- intermixing of agriculture and forestry to provide um, shade and humidity uh, in in optimal ways. Uh, There are ways to improve rice cultivation, especially to reduce methane emissions. And then there's a whole piece around livestock and nutrient management on on farms. Um, And those are all all kind of the supply side um, solutions. And then there are demand side solutions that really are about diets, you know, moving away from animal product consumption and towards plants, as well as a, a whole piece that's to be done around food waste um and the the resulting methane emissions from uh the about one third of all food that we waste uh um at the end at the end of the food chain. So I, I want to um drill down a little bit on diet and,
0: and food waste because to me that was like the most interesting part of, of the report in terms of like things that actual individuals can do to support these broader efforts. A, a lot of discussion around climate change, to me at least, seems and, and appropriately so that these are decisions that like have to be made on on political levels. But you know, a modest reduction in the consumption of, of like cows seems to go like a long way in terms of reducing carbon emissions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, red meat in particular is the is the bi- is the big one. Um, you get emissions. I mean, the 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 emissions uh, from consuming that kind of diet is um, orders of magnitude higher than 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 a than a, a plant based diet, um, and that's both because so ro- cows are ruminants and so they have a digestive system that makes it so that they emit methane and other really potent uh, greenhouse gas over the course of their lives. Uh, The other thing is they require in order to to produce an ounce of red meat, it takes a lot, it takes a a lot more grain to be fed to those animals. So you can, you can just imagine uh, that if we reduce the amount of red meat that we consume, we can free up a lot of land for uh, uh, consumers to eat plant based diets
0: and on food waste could you define i guess what what we mean by food waste and how food waste contributes or what the report says about how food waste contributes to greenhouse gas emissions
1: yeah so there's there's essentially two parts to it one is the losses uh in in on the field um either because of pests or because um, crops stay out in the field too long or, uh, uh, you know, other issues before they get to, uh, before they get to market. And then at the end of the chain, there's the whole issue of food that's wasted because it's not consumed. It's perfectly good food, but it just doesn't get eaten for various reasons. And that's where, as you say, Mark, Uh, There are a lot of opportunities for individuals uh, to take responsibility for making sure that we eat the food that we purchase. And it's essentially, uh, you know, it's doubly bad to waste food because you're wasting all the carbon and greenhouse gases embedded in the production of that food. And then when that food goes to a landfill, it emits methane, which is a short term, uh, very potent, as I was saying, short term uh, greenhouse gas, so so it, it's ba- basically double points against food waste. So that's that's one of the areas where people can be much more conscientious about uh, not wasting, and that that can be that can be a really significant part of the solution.
0: I mean, so lastly, you know, as you said, this is a report of scientists, though influenced by politics to to a certain degree. Uh, to you, though, as someone who has followed this issue for a while, has followed these processes for a, a long time, what would you say are some of the key you know, policy implications of this particular report?
1: Yeah. So I think I mean, going back to what I was saying earlier, the big one is that we have absolutely no time to lose and we have to make really big changes in a very short amount of time. And I think you have, for example, the secretary general who makes that very clear in his pronouncements, including in the fiery speech that he gave uh, at the press conference for uh, for the release of this this IPCC report. I saw that Uh, and it was
0: fiery. (laughs) I was expecting Um, him to start rattling off the names of like
1: CEOs of fossil fuel companies. He he seemed like that. He he seemed on the verge. But go go, go ahead. Sorry. Well, and it's really remarkable that we've now had a second secretary general in a row who's had essentially had climate change as their top priority. I mean, I think that's really to talk about leadership on climate change from the U.N. It's coming. It's coming from the very top. but but to come back to your to come back to your question, I think it's a real call for governments to act now and to act decisively. I think the real challenge right now is that we see geopolitics taking over uh, in a in a significant way, particularly with the the war in Ukraine and a little bit like uh, li- a little bit like COVID, the beginning of the COVID pandemic a couple of years ago. There's sort of this moment when we realize that. Uh, both because of emissions going down quickly, uh, because economies were at a standstill, but then because of recovery packages, there was this opportunity to really shift how we do business uh, across the world and really reduce our emissions. And I would say that there were we seized that opportunity to some extent, but not nearly the way that that some had hoped. I think similarly here with the war in Ukraine, you've got particularly Europe that's really. Uh, being pressured now to make a transition away from imports, particularly of fossil fuels from from Russia, and having to make very dramatic changes in a short amount of time, and that's the kind of thing where it could go either way. You know, it could it could pressure them to uh, uh, lock in lo- uh, over the over a, a longer period of time fossil fuel. Uh, import potential, um, or it could encourage them to aggressively pursue energy efficiency, renewable energy, uh, uh, and 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 other solutions that would be uh, a, a total transformation of how things happen right now. So I think this report comes and reinforces the idea that uh, that these things are possible, and that geopolitics can play against. Uh, climate action, or it can be a little bit of a boost and can be uh, the, the old adage that a, a good crisis is an unfortunate thing to waste comes comes true. Uh, well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time. This is very
0: helpful. Good. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ryan Hobert for... His time. This was great. A very good and easily understandable explanation of what was in this latest IPCC report. And the final report in this cycle will be due out later this year. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.